So we're going to try something. I'm a bit nervous, to be honest. Uh, something that I've never done before is take a chunk of Scripture and actually um, preach it all. So turn to Psalm 73. We, we've taken a, uh, just a, a, a break off from Philippians. So sorry for those of you who were looking for Philippians. But I wanted to preach this. It was on my mind a lot even before we went to America. So if you can turn to Psalm 73. I know it's a long psalm, but we are going to try to cover that um, in this whole sermon. So please bear with me if I just go just a, maybe perhaps maybe a little bit longer than usual. Um, I thank the Lord we don't have windows, so you won't fall out of it. Um, but um, please turn to Psalm 73, and we can we can read it first. First, we'll, we'll, we'll go through it, and we can get, get our heads around what it's about, and then we can start to break it down. Psalm 73 reads, Surely God is good to Israel, those who are pure at heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there is no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is in their necklace, and the garment of violence covers them. Their eyes, their eye bulges from fatness, and imagination of their heart run riots. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against heaven and their tongues parade through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease that they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them on slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and after, afterward receive me in glory. Him have I in heaven but you. And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh, my heart, my fail, and my heart, my fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, but those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The psalmist here this morning wrestles with a question that most of us, if not all of us, will wrestle with in one way or another. And that is why do the wicked 
prosper and the righteous suffer? It is a question that believers perhaps we can ask ourselves in many different ways. Not just the way ASAP will ask this question, but why? Why? Why, God, is it that I look outside and I see unbelievers, wicked people, more prosperous than I, that have better cars and better homes and better clothes and, and, and better jobs and, and they holiday more? And this type of question, what can easily do to us believers, as I was doing with ASAP, which we will look at in a minute, will bring us back all the way to the Garden of Eden and makes us doubt that God is good. It, it makes us doubt that somehow God is ripping us off. He's not giving us what we really think we deserve. The psalmist here reminds us that we ought to walk by faith and not by sight. You see, the psalmist begins by saying this in verse 3, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. In verse 3, sorry, forgive me, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw, as I saw their prosperity. Asap begins to see with his eyes. But then he comes to his senses later on, as we see that in verse 17 and 20, and he begins to see again with the eyes of faith. When? Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Now remember that the blessings of prosperity was given to the Israelites, to the Jews. God made a promise to them if they obeyed, that they will be blessed and they will be prosperous. And he is a Jew and he's an Israelite and he's saying, why are they prospering and I'm not? In fact, he goes on to say in verse 13 and 14, I've kept my heart pure, but have I done this in vain? Am I one of your people? Why am I looking at these people and they are prospering? They, they have fatness bulging out of their eyes, as we'll see in a minute, and I am suffering. And this happens to us believers, can it not be? I mean, we run the race, we want Christ, we desire to be together on a Lord's Day. We're continuously enjoying one another's fellowship, even during the week, as Brother John said. And we want to be transformed in the likeness of Christ. We serve one another, we love one another. We are continuously being persecuted on top of that. And we go through tribulations and our family members are not saved. My husband doesn't want to believe. My wife is gone off track. Why do the wicked prosper? Why is this happening? This is what we see ourselves this morning with this man, Asap, and he's entering into this depression. He starts to ask the question, why God? Why? And if you're honest enough, you will actually say to yourself, have I done this before? Have I asked this question in my own heart? Why God? Now, I want you to think about this. ASAP, this man, according to the scriptures, and I can give you the verses, he was a chief musician. He was one who was put in charge to lead music, people in worship. That was his gift. And God had placed him through David to 
lead people in the tabernacle to worship God. So this man was a spiritual man. We could say this man was born of God. He was a believer. He was a believer. He wrote this psalm. In fact, he wrote other psalms, Psalm 50, and from Psalm 73 to Psalm 83, they're all Asaph's psalms. And yet, this man begins to ask this very question, God, why? Why, God? Why are the wicked prospering? And he goes on to explain in his psalm, he struggles. He gives us the reason why he struggles. And then he gives us the turning point from his struggle. And so what we'll see is ASAP, he goes from sp spiritual dissension to spiritual ascension. So here we're going to look at four things. Number one, the declaration of ASAP. Two, the temptation. Three, the recognition. And four, the conclusion. So look with me in verse 1. Because we need to understand this, brothers and sisters. He begins by saying, Surely God is good. He is good to Israel. He is good to those who are pure in heart. That's his declaration. Straight away, God is good to his people. He's expressing that with a heart of gratitude. He's saying God is good. The, the goodness of God is coming out from Emmanuel's veins. God is good. He's not doubting the goodness of God. He is not saying God is not good. He's saying God is good. He understands that God wouldn't do anything contrary to his own nature. And this shows us, by the way, that Asaph had faith in God. It shows us that, Ab that Asaph was, was convicted by this. It shows us that he's converted and he has this personal understanding that God is good. And God's goodness speaks of his character. He gives generously. He gives freely. He gives willingly. And there's nothing outside of God that makes God good. Because God is good. And so he puts this right at the front and he says, Surely God is good to his people. So everything else I'm about to say does not change the actual character of God. God is good. Even if I'm about to doubt, even if I'm troubled, God is good. And notice what it says. It says, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. Those who are pure in heart. God is good to his people. Spurgeon said, these are the true Israel, not the ceremonial one, but the clean ones. Those who have been bought with the price of Christ. This is what this is saying. And if we don't want to fall like Asaph, if we are struggling in our own minds sometimes and questioning God, we need to be reminded that God is good. God is good when you are sick. God is good when you've got insomnia. God is good when you are poor. God is good when you are needy. God is good when your husband is a nightmare to you, wives. 
God is good when your wife is a nightmare to you. Husbands. God is good when your child comes to saving faith. God is good when your child rejects Christ. God is good. He is the fountain of all goodness. And this is what he's saying here. The Apostle Paul wrote here, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Jesus said, if you being evil, if your child asks for bread, will you give him a snake? Will you give him something? Well, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good things to those whom he loves? So Asaph is is sold to this truth. He's anchored to it. He clings to it. That God is good. And we must establish this truth in our hearts. God is good in his love. God is good in his mercy. God is good in his grace and his provision and his faithfulness and his tender care for his children. We need to be established in this, brothers and sisters. If you want to deal with any issues in life, unless you grasp the fact that God is good, even when things don't look good, it won't be good for you. But then Asaph says, what about me? What about me? What's going on? I do believe that you are good. And he begins to wonder, What's going on? There is a war that starts to take place in his soul, this spiritual dilemma. God, you are good. But why do they look good and not me? So here's the first point. God is good. All right, that's the declaration. The declaration of Asap. Now we move to the second point, which is a little bit larger. All right, we're going to see the temptation. Look at verse 2. So that's verse 1. Verse 2. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. But as for me, you see, I know that truth. I know you're good. But for me, my feet were not right. I've almost slipped. I'm falling. I feel like a backslider. God, what's going on? I don't feel right with you. I can't see it. He might be asking question, am I pure? Am I one of the chosen ones? He questions the Lord. He's questioning his faith. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. All of a sudden, he's weak. He's shaking at the knees. My, my, my feet have nearly slipped. I've climbed Mount Everest. And I'm right on the top. And I feel like I've slipped all the way down to the bottom. What's going on, God? I still see the people on top there, and they are not your people. And here I am all the way back. I feel like I'm losing confidence in the goodness that I cannot even deny. I can't deny your goodness. I know you're good, but I don't feel it. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters. God is good. And we are not standing on slippery ground. 
because this is what's happened with Asap. He's on a slippery slope. He feels like he's on ice and, and he's about to fall. We stand on a solid rock, Jesus Christ. And he cannot be moved. And you will see later that Asap then comes back to life. If we don't think like this, how easy it is for us to feel like we're losing grip. We feel like our faith is not even real anymore. We feel like we're backsliding when we see things only through the fleshly eyes. And we don't see them through the faith, true faith, the heart. And let me just quickly remind you, this is not saying, Asaph is not saying, I have fallen all the way back with no return. No, he says, I feel like that. I feel like it. He says, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Almost. And that means that believers, we can be tempted at times. We can be moved from our post as soldiers, but we will never leave the chief commander. We will never leave the platoon because if you do, you were never a Christian to begin with. Asaph says, Lord, what's going on? And then he begins to tell us why. Look at verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant. I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph, who was a worshipper of God, who led people into worship, he's moved by the Spirit of God to pen this down. And all of a sudden, his eyes saw something completely different. I saw their prosperity. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And that's what's making me Struggle. One look, only one look that can take you away. One look. And you say, why isn't my husband like that? Just one look. Why isn't my wife like that? One look. Why doesn't my child believe? Just one look. One look. And he's starting to question things. I saw the wicked. I saw the wicked and wondered why not me. Why are they prosperous? And in a moment of weakness, he saw what the wicked had. The unbeliever as more appealing to his eyes. The, the grass was greener all of a sudden on the other side for Asa. I thank God for this psalm. Because most of us will hide and say, that doesn't happen to me. That's not true. Or else we wouldn't have it in Scripture. Why? Why? Because I saw their prosperity, their success, their happiness, their wealth. By the way, this word here, prosperity, is the word that the Jews were given to shalom, which means peace. And Asap is saying, well, the covenant people of God, they are the ones who are supposed to have shalom. They are the ones who are supposed to be at peace. But I am not feeling shalom. 
I am not feeling peace. I am not feeling healthy or prosperous. Why? Because he was looking only with his own eyes. How crucial it is for us to guard our eyes so that we can keep them above and not below, keep our hearts and mind pure in our thoughts and walk by faith lest we see with our own eyes and feel envious in want. We can feel envious of someone's clothes or someone's car or someone's house or whatever it may be. You fill in the blank. Let us be reminded that there is no greater treasure than Christ. No fame, no power, no worldly pleasures will ever come close in knowing Jesus Christ the Lord. And may we join the apostle and say we will count it all as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ the Lord. And so he continues ASAP in verse 4. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. No pains in their death. They're not just living in peace. They're dying peacefully. They're dying well. And, and their body's fat. Not fat, fat, round. Fat is speaking here about joyful, happy. They are full of joy. They have absolutely no difficulties, no problems. Uh, let me just quickly say this. Of course, some believers have difficulties and problems and issues. This at this stage is Asaph's just perception. That's what he's seeing. At that moment of weakness. In his sinful state of mind, he thinks whatever he's seeing, there's nothing wrong with these guys at all. They've got it all. They've got everything. And he begins to fall down his spiral, feeling sorry for himself and having a self-pity party with himself. That's what's happening. And he continues, read with me, verse 5. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. There's nothing wrong with these guys. Everything is going well with them. Everything is happening. They're not plagued like others. They don't have afflictions. I have afflictions. I have problems. But they don't have problems. I'm suffering. But they're not suffering. They don't have faith. I have faith. How come they look like they're better than me? They seem to have all the earthly blessings and all the treasures, and I am struggling. What's going on, God? Verse 6. Verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Because of everything that they now have, they, they wear it around their necks. They are so boastful in it. They're not just fat and having all that they can have. They actually now 
proud themselves in it. They are boasting in it. They clothe themselves, themselves with violence. Woe to you who gets near me. Verse 7. Their eye bulges from fatness. Their imagination of the heart run riots. Even what they imagine, even what's in their mind, they are running with it and they are filled with it and the desires of their hearts seem to be coming true. I mean, Asap seems to have some spiritual insights here because he's, he's going all the way. He's going, man, these guys, even their imaginations, whatever their imaginations are, they're running with it and they're getting it, man. I'm getting ripped off as a Christian. Then he continues. Because they have this, look at verse 8 and 9. Because of all this, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against heavens, the heavens, and their tongue they have set parades through all the earth. They speak down on people. They speak highly of themselves. They speak against the heavens. Their head is so puffed up and their tongue's going through the earth. They might as well say, I'm God. They're acting like God. Now let me tell you that the greatest man-made God ever created by man, it is the one that he sees in the mirror. Okay, that's the one he worships. That's what we're seeing. They worship themselves. They, they're full of goodness. But God, what's happening with me? He continues in verse 10 and 12. Therefore, these people, therefore, his people run to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? I believe this is talking about not only they are doing these things. In Asaph's eyes and mind, there are people flocking to them and listening to them and drinking from their wickedness and they are being drawn by them. I want to remind you, us who are in the church, who are believers, are people who can do this, the televangelists, that can easily draw you to believe them, that you can have a prosperous and healthy and wealthy life. I'll tell you what will happen to them as we will see. And they continue to boast in themselves saying, how does God actually even know? How does God know? Does God have any knowledge? The Most High have knowledge? This is mockery. They are challenging the very character of God. And because this is true, and the wicked keep mocking God, Asap continues to struggle. Do you know how much he struggles? Look at verse 13 and 14. I mean, you can't get any lower than this. He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. 
and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Are you serious, God? I mean, I kept the law. I'm the one who's pure. I'm the one who's walking innocent. Then why am I following you, God? Is this the repayment that I get? I'm struck and chastised by you? While all the other people are actually running riots and, and they filling in their dreams. And what's happening? You're paying me back with rebuke. They have no conviction of sin. I'm convicted of my own sins. I'm chastised. Well, we know he's actually a man of God because he says, I kept my heart pure. We understand that. But he's saying, God, why are you chastising me? Why am I suffering? Then what's the purpose of me keeping my heart pure? You're disciplining me. In fact, it says every morning, I feel like I'm being disciplined. I keep the law. I'm obedient. I fast. I don't commit adultery. I give to the poor. I don't worship idols. Where is my shalom? Where is my peace, God? What's going on? Can this truth be true of you this morning? Do you feel like somehow God is ripping you off? Somehow that you deserve something more than what you have? Maybe it's because your eyes, you're seen only with those eyes and not with your spiritual eyes. Now I want to say something that maybe perhaps will humble us a little bit before we get into how he recognizes what's going on. You know the scripture makes it very clear. I speak to those of you who have children. What do you do to your children when they do something wrong? Hoping you answer, well, I'll answer it for you. You discipline them, right? And you discipline them, why? Because you hate them? You discipline them because you love them. The reason why you discipline them is because you want to put them back on the right path, right? And of course, your children, then they fight with you. You hate me, Daddy. Oh, when I get older. In which, then you, in your God-given authority, you give him more discipline, right? Yes or no? Of course you do. Because he's now thinking he's got it over you, so you give him more discipline, right? But how easy it is for us to question God when we're disciplined. How easy is it for us? Because we tell our kids, you don't question daddy. Don't you question daddy. When he disciplines you, don't question daddy, right? Because daddy has been given the authority by God. But then we question our dear daddy who loves us way more than we can love our own children because the scripture makes it clear that God disciplines those whom he loves. There's no need to discipline the wicked. There's no need for that. Only the children of God are disciplined when in sin, of course, because they're legitimate children. But there is hope. This is where we come to the hope. This is where we come when 
ASAP starts to sort of snap out of it a little bit. We come to the third point, the recognition. Look at verse 15 and 16. Something starts happening to this guy. He says, if I had said, now I want you to pay attention to this, I will speak thus. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. All this was happening in his mind, in his heart. He hadn't done it yet. It was all happening in his mind. And what does he say? He says, if I said this to any of my brethren, I would make them stumble. Right? It's a great lesson for us to learn. If there is something going on, perhaps that is not right, there are times that you don't share it. There are times that you do not share with your brother that. Unless you're at the end of the rope and you don't know how to get out of it, sure, you go and see your elders. But he's saying, I'm not going to tell them. I'm not going to tell them I feel like God is ripping me off. I'm not going to tell the congregation because I would have to give an account to God. He still understood that. So he's starting to come to his senses. Spurgeon said this about this verse. The thought of scandalizing the family of God, he could not bear. And yet, his inward thoughts seethed or boiled and fermented and caused an intolerable anguish within. After all is said and done, this man, where can he go? How does he get out of this trouble? Out of how do any of us get out of this trouble if we were to go down this path? Look at verse 17. I love this part. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Did you see that? Only when Asap set his mind to worship God again and look at the eternal things and not the temporal things, he began to have the right perspective that he had at first. Oh, he was freed again. He felt that freedom again. It's only when we gaze upon Christ, when we take our eyes off this earth and this kingdom, the kingdom of self, that we can see clearly on what Christ is doing. Until I went to the sanctuary, the holy temple. What happens there? Worship happens there. Singing happens there. The scripture is read there. Does that sound like something? It's church for us today, brothers and sisters. To come to church, to hear the word of God preached, to listen to songs, to sing songs. To come into a place where there is a fire. And his fire was ignited again. He started to see again. He started to sing again. And he started to see with his eyes of faith. And then he says, I perceived their end. I started to see these people, what's going to happen to them. And he explains it to us. What's going to happen to these people? Let me read it to you. Oh, I pray for you. 
you, my unbelieving friend, who are not born of God. Those of you who do not have the Spirit of God. And you may think that you're a Christian. Please listen to these words. Because Asap says, this is going to be your end. And he says this, Surely you set them on slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When aroused, you will despise their form. Whatever these people have. In a moment, there is terror. There is horror. There is panic. The only reason they are being fatted like a fatted calf, it is for the day of slaughter when God will chuck them into hell. Their shalom is false, is momentary, and they will slip right into hell. Their joy will be cut short, but their shame will be everlasting. They will not experience the eternal shalom that God promises to all those who put their faith and trust in Him. No matter what they are, rich or poor or famous, have a good car, a good house, they will not have the peace of Christ Jesus for eternity. And Asap comes from reality to reality and he goes from self-pity to pitying these people. Because in a moment, in a blink of an eye, how quick they are gone. They are destroyed in a moment and they are cast down, swept away by sudden terrors. Now this changes the whole notion that God doesn't send anyone to hell. God doesn't judge anybody. You send yourself to hell. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says God will send them to hell for rejecting Him. The Scripture is very clear. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This tells us how easily though, that even believers can be enticed by worldly and sinful pleasures. How easily can believers turn from worshipping the true God and all of a sudden say, I want what they have. And we get tossed to and fro and all of a sudden we are not right with God. We feel like we don't have faith. We, we're walking away from the faith. We don't come to church as often. We don't want to be discipled as much. It's because your eyes are wrong. Your heart might be for God, but you're looking at it in a completely different light. Asap continues, he says, like a dream. Like a dream when one awakes. When aroused, you will despise their form. They are fattening themselves with worldly pleasures and treasures. But Asap says that their life is nothing but a five to eight hour dream in comparison for those of you who sleep. Nothing in comparison. Like a dream, everything that they have is just an illusion. It will be taken away from them and it will be no more. 
those who glorify themselves. They worship the God in the mirror. They feed their bellies. The wealth is their God. They, they love their dreams. Their dreams will quickly be turned into an eternal nightmare when they sit under the judgment of the wrath of God. This is, this is serious stuff. This nightmare will not end. You won't wake up from it. You would wish that you heard this sermon again and whatever sermons you've heard over the years to say, Lord, have mercy. But you will not say, Lord, have mercy. You will be angry and angrier and angrier for eternity against the God who did not save you. And so he begins to say, this is what happens to these people. But for me, verse 21 and 22, just let me read this. When my heart was embittered, when I was pierced and I was pierced within, then I was like a senseless and I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Where we wander off the right, the right track, the right path. We're like Nebuchadnezzar. We're like mad animals eating grass. He, this is what he's saying. When I, I, I was cut. I was ignorant, stupid before you. Apart from Christ, we're nothing like beasts before God. And then he continues this wonderful portion here now. Look at verse 23 and 24. I pray that now you, my brothers and sisters, are going to be enlightened. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you guide me and afterward receive me in glory. Did you get that? What a gracious God. God did not leave Asaph. God did not leave him even when he was not right, even when he was being envious, when he's Eyes are looking confused. He says, I'm continually with you. But why? You have taken my right hand. He did not cast him to hell. But like a loving father, he would hold his hand. Those of you again who have children will understand what that's like. You hold your child's hand if you teach him to cross the road, right? You hold their hands. And sometimes your child, he wants to grow up. He sort of let go just a little bit. Just a little bit. But as soon as you see danger, you grip him. You grip him again. As soon as you can let go sometimes of God, because your senses aren't right, your mind's not right, your focus is not right, you're letting go. And in the proper time, before you're going to get run over, God grabs you. This is what this is saying. He gripped me, Yahweh, not the wicked's hands. He gripped my hand. He didn't discipline them. He disciplined me. All of a sudden, there's a turnaround. God is not bringing wicked people to perfection. He's not molding the wicked to the image of his son. No. 
He's transforming his beloved bride and making her pure for the wedding feast. It is you, brothers and sisters, whom God wants to display to the world. Not the wicked. If you could see it this way, if God is the author, he is actually the movie writer, he is the author, and he has scripted us as believers to be, so to speak, the main actors. The wicked are the secondary people. The wicked are the ones who always lose. And we win in the end. God wants to display His church, His people to the world. Not the wicked. With your counsel, He says, you guide me. And afterwards, you receive me in glory. I mean, isn't it wonderful that God doesn't just hold our hands, grip our hands here? With that same hand, He will receive us in due time in glory. He doesn't want us just to have an abundant life now, but be reminded that one day that abundant life will be transferred into the kingdom of God. So ASAP comes to the conclusion, which is our fourth point. I'm hoping I'm doing all right with time. Conclusion, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. Do you see that? What's happened to this guy? I mean, first he's complaining, he's self-pity, and he's looking at them, and he's saying, look at what they have. And all of a sudden he says, whom have I in heaven but you? I don't desire the riches of this world anymore. I don't desire the fancy clothes, the good shoes, and whatever they have. No. I have nothing else but you. He comes to his senses and he says, I desire nothing on earth. Do you get that? I desire nothing on earth. But before, he says, I was envious of the wicked, did he not? Now he's come in his right mind and he looks at and he says, this is crazy. This is folly. This is madness. I desire nothing on earth. In comparison to God, there's nothing here on earth that can satisfy you. That's where Asaph comes and he's saying, Whom have I in heaven but you? Heaven is not heaven unless God is in heaven. I don't want to go to heaven for the sake of heaven. I want to go to heaven, and I am going to heaven because of Christ, because Christ is there. Heaven is only heaven because Christ makes it heaven. It's the reason we want to go to heaven. That's what he's saying here. Whom have I in heaven but you? So he goes from self-pity to self-abasement. From, from, from being high and thinking God has to give an answer to him to being humble. And he says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, because that's what we've seen. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I was not in the right mind. I was weak. 
I was falling. I felt like backsliding. But God, you are my strength. It doesn't say he was my strength. God is my strength. God is continuously our strength. He is the rock of my heart, he's saying. When I'm overwhelmed and distressed in trouble, when I feel like I cannot return back to where I was, when I'm spiraling down, God, you are my portion. You are God. You have restored my health, my spiritual health. And my desire is now only for you. And you are my portion forever. I will possess you not just in this life. I'm going to possess you for eternity. This is what's happening. When a person takes the focus of himself and puts it back on God. And he concludes verse 27. And I'll read 28 in a minute. For behold, those who are far from me will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. He knows that God is going to destroy the wicked, the unbelievers, those who are far from him. He knows that. And that means that God shows no partiality. God destroyed those in the past. He was going to destroy those in Asaph's time. And he will destroy the wicked and the unbeliever in our time. There's no partiality with God. God will not overlook your sin. Unless it is covered by the blood of Christ. They decided to feed their bellies. They were proud in their doings. They loved their lust. They fulfilled their sinful passions. They followed the prince of the power of the air. They lived in sensuality. They loved the God in the mirror. And these unfaithful people will be destroyed in a moment in hell. I don't know how often and how many times we have to say what we say. But we continue to say it because we believe this. That only God saves. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you are one of these wicked people. It doesn't matter how religious you are. In fact, it doesn't matter that you take communion in the morning. It doesn't matter that you come to church. It doesn't matter if you're listening to your preaching. It doesn't even matter that you read the Bible. Unless you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and He causes you to be born again and giving you new affections, new desires, a new mind and everything that comes within you to love Him, you are most likely one of these wicked people and will be destroyed in a moment under God's wrath. Jesus says, Come. To me, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He makes that very clear in so many passages. In John 14, 6, I am the way, as we've been studying the I am's. 
There is no other way to get to God the Father but through that one channel, Jesus Christ. I am the truth. There is no other truth. No matter how good you may think you are, no matter how much works you think you do, that's not the truth that will get you to heaven. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. I am the truth and I am the way. There is no other way, no other path. Come to Jesus Christ that you may have eternal life. And then he ends it with this. Verse 28. But as for me, do you see what's been happening with this man? But as for me, at the beginning he says, but as for me, God, come on, what's happening? But now he says, he's been humbled. I think we need to be humbled often. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to say it's for me, God. What's happening? What are you doing? I don't want that. I want to say, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. My good. I've made the Lord my refuge. That I might tell of all your work. The nearness of God is our good. Being close to God will make you less attracted and to the world. Being near God will make you see what God sees. That the world is perishing and everything that's in it. So you don't desire it. The nearness of God is good for His people. I said, it's good for me to be near God. It's good for me to be near God. And brothers and sisters, it's good for you to be near God. The nearer you are to God, the closer you feel to heaven, the more you're going to say with ASAP, I have made the Lord my refuge. And you start to feel all the wonders of God. And you desire nothing on this earth but Christ and Him alone. I made Him my comfort, my joy. I'm relying on Him. He's now my treasure, my pleasure. And that's all I seek. Why? Well, we often say, why did God leave you here? What's the main purpose that God left you here? And we tell you two things. To glorify God and to do what? To proclaim the gospel. Look at the last part of verse 8. He says, "With, but For me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I, He's the reason, my tell of all your works. Brothers and sisters, we have work to do. It is not finished. We came back from America and we saw two brothers in the midst of hell proclaiming the gospel to a dying people on a Las Vegas strip. Sin City is not just in America. It's in Melbourne. We have dying people. We have dying family members, brothers and sisters. This is the reason that we're left behind. That Christ will be manifested in our midst and our voices will shout Him even louder. So, 
There's your applications I put them through there for you. But let me just share something with you. Whatever you're going through, whatever you are facing in your life, whatever doubts, even like ASAP, God works through that to bring you to a higher ground, to a more spiritual place where you will enjoy Christ all the more because He is your portion forever. You may lose grip of God from time to time, but He holds your hand tight. He never lets His people go because if He did, He wouldn't be the God of the Scriptures. Being God's people is wonderful. So be around the people of God. Be in fellowship with God. Be in prayer to God and with the people of God. Be around them and you will see your Father even in a greater light. For God did not save you to keep you individually by yourself. He saved you to put you in a body that He loved and died for. What can we say? To these things. Let me just read 25 and 26 again. Verse 25 and 28. And see, is this you? Whom have I in heaven but you? Can you say that? Can you say, and beside you I desire nothing on earth? Can you say this morning, the nearness of of God is my good. It's my good. It's good for me to be near God, which implies the opposite. It's not good for you to be apart from God because when Asaph was apart from God, his life started to become a mess. So stand firm in God's word. Turn to God. Confess your sins. Confess your love and for money, your love for the world. You want what other people have. Confess it to the Lord and be in fellowship. Read the word and be a witness for the word of God. I want to leave you with a quote that might just stir our souls a little bit from Martin Lloyd-Jones. The curse of life is that we are all self Centered. We live for self instead for God. And thus we are selfish, we are jealous, and we are envious. May that never be true of us, and yet it is true. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. How great it is, Lord God, that you are a God who is patient, a God who is caring, a God who holds us close to Him. Even when we're stumbling, falling and sinning, Lord God, You are nevertheless there with us. And then we feel Your grip harder and harder so that You can pull us back, that we may see clearly again and worship You truthfully. Lord, I pray that this truth will resonate in our hearts and in our mind this morning. And for those who are not Your people, Oh, Lord, may you lead them to still waters where they will drink freely from Christ Jesus and he will become their shalom.
引用台